0: Amen. Thank you, Barnett family, and welcome to Bethel. Welcome this morning to worship. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be one of the pastors here at Bethel downtown, along with Mike and with Josh, and we are delighted that you're here. Merry Christmas. It is that season. It has begun formally and officially this Sunday morning is the first Sunday of Advent, even though we kind of got a, a rough draft start last week. I wanted to begin talking about the Christmas season, that Christ is come, Christ will come again. There's gonna be a lot of different things that will vie for your heart's affection, your mind's attention over these next four or five weeks. But Christ is come. Not the myth, not the legend, not the stories, not the lore. Literally the God-man, the second person of the Godhead trinity, God's sendable self has come. And so we get to spend an entire month talking through that, walking through that, being gobsmacked all over again, how this baby steps out of glory to take away my sin and shame and death. And Lord, that's a big job. And it's important that we do it over Christmas because I don't know if you're like me at all, but my tendency is to go on autopilot. Most of the year, I like to try to arrange my day, arrange my week, arrange my month. I want things to be predictable. I want things to be calendared. I want it to be scheduled so that I can experience and enjoy some semblance of control, that I can for a moment at least begin to believe that I am master of my faith, captain of my soul, and I'll call on God if I really need a big favor. In the meantime, I got this. And then the interruptions will inevitably come. And at first they're irksome and they're irritating. Then you realize, no, they are divine. Intrusions into my calendar that has a tendency to leave God out. So I want to say and invite you into Christmas. The greatest of all interruptions. The greatest of all intrusions, where mankind seemingly abandoned, discarded, left to his own devices, into that mess comes the Christ. Now, last week, we started talking about our Advent sermon series, Surprising Grace, that Christ comes into our mess, and that's true, but we've gotten the opportunity to begin to see that Christ comes from our mess, so that he can identify and affiliate and associate with all of our brokenness, all of our wreckage, all of our tendencies to dysfunction. Now, that's really good news. If I was making it up, I would never include this kind of stuff, but it's, because it's not made up. God has done a thing, and so we've been looking at this topic, this idea called surprising grace. Now, we've already heard it sung marvelously, miraculously this morning, we heard Matthew's Begats song. It's one of my favorite songs. And if you have the bravery to put that to music and to sing it on stage, Josh Drew and team, that was incredible. For those of you that missed it, this is why you should be upstairs by 1030. You missed some good stuff this morning. But what Josh led us through was the singing of Matthew 1. And I want us to look at this opening passage ever so briefly, and then we'll move on into our text for the day. So Matthew chapter 1 beginning in verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating because it is so super central and significant. As Matthew writes his gospel, he's writing to a group primarily of Jewish readers who are wondering about the Messiah that Pilate had had fixed atop Christ's cross, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. And so Matthew's wanting to prove that that actually was true. So he's writing a genealogy to defend that Jesus has the bloodline. And so he starts off strangely calling Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. But those who are familiar with the story know that Abraham predates David by about a thousand years. So what's going on? This first line of the New Testament, y'all, it's the first line of the New Testament. And here we're getting the gospel. Okay, so here's the deal. The entire Bible, from the table of contents to the maps, is telling us the story of God's grace. From the very beginning, and God said, let there be, and there shouldn't have been, but there was grace and God created. And so all the way through the Bible, it is the story of grace. But Christmas is the exclamation point. Christmas is the highlighter, asterisk, underlined, bold italics to God's grace. Half of human history tumbled and stumbled forward in death and dysfunction and disease and depravity. Half of human history goes all the way Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. And then right in the center of that, God does a new thing out of a no thing. He summons a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, a pagan moon worshiper with a barren wife right in the center of human history. I want you to think about that. The fulcrum point of human existence, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm gonna do three things for you. Your responsibility, flop over as though dead, night, night. And as Abraham's laying there in a trance, God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm gonna give you offspring and I'm gonna make you a blessing to all the nations. The hope of the world is promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and that is the central promise of Scripture. You will have land. You will have offspring. You will have blessing. And then it doesn't come, and it doesn't come. For a 1,000 years, we are finally introduced to a king named David, and David is going to be the instrumentation. He's going to be the agency. He's going to be the tool that's going to make all of the promises that God gave Abram. They're all going to come to pass under a king of David's line. How does David do? Not so much. And so we're left wanting more. What Matthew is telling us is, don't you see? God is faithful. We have a chance to come to the text this morning, perhaps enamored by the pageantry of man. There's music and there's lights and there's mulled wine and there's Linus holding a blanket saying, lights, please. All of those things are wonderful. But not if we miss the promise of God. I love all of the stories and I like the movies and I like the songs, but we must not forget the promise of God. He will do what he said he would do. And this Jesus is the David king who will fulfill all of the promises made to Abram. Now with all of that as a run up, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, he is the Davidic king who will fulfill the promises made to Abram. That's how you're supposed to read verse 1. Abram was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. You might remember Tamar, who last week we studied, who seduced her father-in-law. How was your Thanksgiving? That was weird. Not as bad as theirs, okay? But by Tamar, there's Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Remember those two for later. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. That's where we'll spend some time this morning. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She doesn't even get named because it was so ribald and lewd and inappropriate. Now, what's fascinating about this, you would think if you were trying to prove to a Jewish readership of the blue-bloodedness, the aristocracy of Jesus, you would have included the great grand matriarchs of Israel, right? You, you would have said, and Sarah, wife of Abraham, and Rebekah, the faithful wife of Isaac, and Rachel, the apple of Jacob's eye, or at least Leah, who ends up being his lifelong love or something. But now... You don't get any of those. You get two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a Hittite. Merry Christmas. These Gentile women, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope in God, are brought near because they trust God in their way, in their time. And we see a manifestation of a promise that God will fulfill through Jesus, In the story of Tamar, we see that God provides Messiah, the one who will rule, the one who will be present literally, bodily, physically on the earth. Today in Rahab, we're gonna see that God's going to send a conqueror. We're gonna see that prefigured in a sense through Joshua who will come from the east and he will eradicate and judge evil injustice. Now next week, we'll look at Ruth and we'll see that God will provide a redeemer, the one who will buy back from sin and shame and death. In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll look at the story of Bathsheba, who will demonstrate the coming of Messiah as king. And then finally, on Christmas Eve morning, on the 24th, we'll talk about Mary, that God has provided a son through Jesus. All these women are relatively familiar to us. We've heard them perhaps at a time or two, and maybe they're even a little bit shocking in the grand narrative of Scripture. But God's grace goes all the way to the ends and the extent of man's depravity and error, and that's such good news. Despite all of our depravity and all of our departure from the path God intends, God's grace always breaks through and accomplishes His purpose for His people. Peace and blessing. And so yet again, our big idea for this morning is the same as it was last week and for this whole Advent series. Sin is no match for God's grace. Sin is no match for God's grace. Though it is enormous, though sin is the primary problem in the cosmos, it is still no match for God's grace. And the moral of all of these stories, is that morals don't save a single soul. It is surprising grace that does that. And immorality, though it is offensive, does not disqualify us from receiving, believing the gospel. So the greatest gift I could offer to us, a people, at Christmas is to be confounded all over again that we've been set free from all of our sin and error and failure by the grace of a loving and sovereign God. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 2. I get it, not a typical Advent or Christmas passage, but we'll walk through this fairly briefly. But to do so, we've got to do it the right way. See, we're Westerners, it's the 21st century, and so for the last 150 years or so in the West, we are used to the literary form of our culture and context, and, and why wouldn't we be? We tend to do literature and story and narrative like this, left to right. Here's the point. I'm going to not tell you the point, and I'm going to tell you the point that I just told you. That's how, we do, that's how we do stories. Not in antiquity. That's not the Hebraic Jewish way to tell a story. I like their way. You'll see this in Joshua chapter 2. What they do is they'll give you some setup details, and then they'll give you the main point, and then they'll conclude with some setup details. So it's sort of like a sandwich, an, an Advent Christmas sandwich, right here. Bethel downtown, December 3rd, you're gonna have some lettuce and some bread and some trimmings on this side. You're gonna have some lettuce and some trimmings on this side, but right in the middle is the meat. And you don't call a peanut butter and jelly sandwich a bread sandwich. You call it a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because that's the stuff that's in the inside that matters. Are you following with me, people? Wake up. It's time to have a Christmas sandwich, all right? Joshua chapter two, what we're gonna do is we'll read the first seven verses, and then we're gonna read the last third from 15 to 24, And then we'll spend a little bit of time in the middle, 8 to 14. All right, so Joshua, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, be super clear, that is Joshua the son of Nun, not Joshua the son of a nun. That would be weird. They didn't exist back then, okay? Joshua's father's name is Nun. Now, that's bizarre because his father's name is Fish. Nun is Hebrew for Fish. Joshua was actually from the tribe of Ephraim, which would have been in the northeastern part of the country, a very inland, uh, dry place. And yet, for some reason, his father's name is Noon. Don't really know why. Yeshua, Joshua, means God is salvation or God saves, the son of fish. I don't think that means he had a fishy character. We don't really know. But you have to remember that all of these stories are intended to be recited and retold from parents to children and from grandparents to grandchildren. All of these names that we hear in the Old Testament, they're generally connected to an animal. So Joshua's dad's name was Fish. You might remember the story in Judges of Deborah leading the armies of God. Deborah means honeybee. And so you would tell the story of the honeybee led the armies of God. Or you might remember the story of Jael. Jael fought a battle against Cicero, and she drove a tent spike through Cicero's head while he slept. Jael means little ibex or little deer. Cicero means war horse. And so because of God's faithfulness and his power, the little ibex drove a stake through the war horse's head. Oh, I like this God. I like these stories. I want to be an Israelite. Right on. So we're being set up for these kinds of stories. Joshua and his buddy Caleb were the spies that go into the land. Joshua, God saves, and Caleb, dog boy. (laughs) Caleb means dog. Dog. But it is. Leah. Oh, sweet, sweet Leah. We love her. Leah means cow. It's just how it is. So you have to kind of keep some of those aspects in mind as we read through this passage and others in the Old Testament. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly. What's going on? We're given the fact that Joshua sends two men to spy out the land. Now, This is requiring us to to recognize and remember that a lot has happened to Joshua. Moses has died. The the leader of Israel who led with conviction and with clarity, he's dead. God has buried his friend Moses at the foot of Mount Nebo. Joshua is now in charge. Joshua is now leading the people. He's going to drag them across the River Jordan and take over the land that God has given them. It is conquest. It is not settling Very important to say, especially in our day and time, it is not conquest, it is not colonialization, it is conquest. The land belongs to Yahweh, and he is completely crystal clear about it consistently. So Joshua is now in charge. Three different times in chapter one, he's told to be strong and courageous. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua, look up here, be strong and courageous. Why? Because he was neither. I love in our children's curricula sometimes we'll depict Joshua as this big, huge, swole dude with a headband and a muscle shirt with a bad goatee. That's not Joshua. He probably weighs 135 soaking wet. And so God has to say, be strong and courageous. You're now in charge. Joshua might not have been strong and courageous, but he was a good learner. You might remember back in the Old Testament in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, we're told that Moses sends 12 spies to go scout out the land. Ten of them come back and say, little God, big giants, we're out. Two of them, however, got a salvation, and dog boy, they say, big God, little giants, we can take them. And the hearts of the people melt, and they don't trust God, and they take laps in the wilderness for 40 years. Now it's time to go into the land for sure. And Joshua says, we're not wasting time with that whole 12-step program. Nay, nay. I'm just going to send two. Two. Now, we don't get their names, but he's going to send two guys, and listen to them. This is how this is going to go. He sent two men secretly from Shatim as spies. Oh, I always love to get to read that name at Christmas time. Okay. It's, it's the acacias. It's the cluster of acacia trees on the east side of the Jordan River. Don't get excited, all right? That's where they were sent from, the acacia trees, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went, and they came into the house of a, oh, no, no of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. The ESV sweetly clarifies that verb choice, and they laid there is the literal. What is going on? The hope of Israel. God is faithful. He's going to get it done. He's promised the land. And so now these two unnamed guys go into the land, and they go directly to, not Bucky's. No, 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 no. They went to the house of Rahab the prostitute. Now, for 2,000 years, the church has tried to bless this woman. They've tried to help her out and say, well, maybe that word, maybe she's just like an innkeeper. Maybe she's just got some Airbnbs, and, you know, you get the code for it, and you check in. And Nope, she is Zahan. I'm not really supposed to say that in Hebrew. She's a prostitute. She lives in the world's oldest city. Some scholars say it's 11,000 years old. Some say it's 13,000 years old. Whichever, it's old. And it's the lowest city. And she is Zahan in this place. And her name is Rahab. Now, you and I hear that and we go, oh, I've heard this story before, Rahab. The prostitute with a heart of gold. Not exactly. Not exactly. You got to understand that when the time Joshua is written, the name Rahab is already 1,000 years in Hebrew culture and lore. 30,000 years old. In the book of Job, Rahab is a word that is used to describe Egypt because Egypt was that great, haughty, insolent, arrogant, pompous, proud nation. In Isaiah, Rahab was described as arrogant, insolent, and a sea monster. So, parents, if your son comes home from college and wants to introduce you to his new girlfriend, Rahab, you're going to have issues. The prostitute sea monster, this goes badly. This is the house that the whole promise funnels into. Two guys sent, what's going to happen? Because if she guts them, if she betrays them, if something bad, if they are defiled somehow, then the hearts of the people are going to melt all over again. We're gonna lose centuries. And we go into Jericho, just these two guys, into the house of the arrogant, pompous, insolent, sea monster prostitute. You see that? Like, whoa, this is about as dangerous as it can possibly get. Verse 2, it gets funnier. And it was told to the king of Jericho, like, these are the worst spies ever. Like, did they walk in wearing capes with stars of David on them? Like, no, because they didn't exist yet. But still, you would figure they're trying to walk in and, like, not look like Jews and trying to maybe use Canaanite accents, like, or whatever, like, immediately, The king of Jericho is told. So it tells you a couple things. Number one, these guys were not good at spying. Number two, security in Jericho was airtight. Everything was stacked against the success of God's plan and purpose. They would have seen Israel on the other side of the Jordan. It's seven miles from Jericho to cross the Jordan to Shittim, seven miles. They would have heard the livestock bleeding at night. They would have heard um, all the chatter, all the songs as the nation would sing. They would have heard the conversations. They would have seen the smoke and the fires. They knew that they were there. For 40 years, they could see them right across the river. And so security in Jericho, they were on high alert. It was DEFCON 5. So the king of Jericho finds out about this behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Oh, we thought they were going to come. Turns out the process, the invasion has begun. Verse 3, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. That's rather interesting. He's the king. Now don't think of the king like King Arthur in Camelot. He's melech is the, is the term for king. It's a, he's like a mayor. He's in charge of the city and its security, but don't think of a big, massive, fancy medieval palace. He's just in charge of protecting the people, and he gives the order of when the gate is to be shut, but he doesn't go and have her door kicked in, and that's an important indicator. Not that he's afraid, but that he recognizes, even if it's your mortal enemy, the ancient Near East, in antiquity, the highest virtue and value was hospitality, And she's showing these guys hospitality. Even though they're the enemies from across the the river, you can't just go and pull them out. That is an absolute violation of the one code of Canaan and all that region that he could not, would not violate. So he says, hey, I know they're there. Bring out these two men. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Lie number one. She's going to tell four whoppers. And people have used this text for thousands of years to go, see, it's okay to lie for the greater good. It's not at all what the writer of Joshua is doing. This is not his point, not a part of the text at all. She's a Canaanite. Lying is what happens when you open your mouth and sound comes out. There is no other code of honesty whatsoever to the Canaanites. She's not trying to hedge and be a little. no, No, this is just what you do when you're a Canaanite, and she is deceptive. And she does lie. Is she supposed to? Is she not supposed to? I don't know. Here's what we do know. God would have protected them in some miraculous way that we don't get to hear about. What was it? I don't know. But she's deceptive. I do not know where they were from, she says. That's line number one, verse five. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, lie number two. I don't know where the men went, lie number three. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them, lie number four. All right, so she's just totally... Uh, rope doping the security forces. Verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Oh, Rahab, she diversified. She was a businesswoman and a businesswoman. She was apparently, and her whole family was involved in, in flax harvest. And so what do you do with flax? Well, you get flax, you take the seeds, you crush up the seeds, and it makes oil. And you soak the flax in water for about three weeks until the fibers all separate. And then you use the flaxseed oil, and you can take the fibers of the flax, and you can make linen. You can braid it together and make really strong ropes. And it just so happened that she's a rope maker as well as a prostitute. Didn't see that one coming. Verse six, she had brought them up to the roof and, and uh, hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Verse seven, So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Cliffhanger. So she ropeadopes them. She says, "If you leave now, you can still catch them. They went that away!" She sends the pursuers to the east and to the south. We know where the fords are. The fords are just a little bit south and east of Jericho. Go that way. I'm sure they're going back to Israel. Run after them. And so they mount up, and they're going the wrong way. And then the gate closes. And the suspense is supposed to be palpable. Like, what's going to happen? They just got closed inside the city gate. It's like being trapped on the Death Star. Some of you are too old. Like, what's a Death Star? Google it. They're trapped inside. What's going to happen to the, to the plan of God? What's going to happen to these two guys? Cliffhanger, move over. We're now gonna pick up in verse 15 to see how this thing plays out, and we'll go back and talk about the sandwich. So one piece of bread and lettuce dealt with. Now we're going to the other side of the sandwich. More bread, more lettuce. Verse 15. So they're back at the house. We're still at the house now. She let them down by a rope, dinky through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. That's really strange. It seems redundant. What's going on? Jericho was a big city, and they had this massive wall that surrounded the entire city. But Jericho continued to flourish and thrive and grow. And so they built a larger wall around the first wall, about 15 feet in space. So there's a void between the first wall and the newer, larger wall. And so what does Jericho do? They came and they dumped in all kinds of dirt, rubble, debris, trash, and just whatever to fill this in. So now you've got like a super thick super wall. And then they laid wood across the breach that was full of debris. And so what happens is, it's what happens is people have a hard time finding a place to live. Jericho had a finite space. And so those uh, who were less resourceful, we might say, less affluent, they go in and they start clawing and scratching voids out of the space between the two walls. And so they will have some small rooms in between the walls, very safe, very dark, dank, and nasty. And then on the wood that was laid on top, they would build some rooms on top. So she lives in the wall of the wall. This make sense? It's not the best part of town. Hence, that's where she would set up shop, if you follow. And she's right on the outskirts of town. So if there's an attack that's going to come, it's going to come right to her window. So that's where they are in her house there in verse 15. Verse 16. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. When she says go into the hills, that can only mean one thing. Go north and west deeper into the heart of Canaan. She sent the pursuers to Israel's borders, essentially the Jordan. She says to you guys, you're going to have to, 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 to trust me. Go inward for three days. And if you look in Jericho, you can stand and you can see about 12 miles to the north, are the, the elevation rises from about 2,000 feet below sea level to about 1,500 feet above sea level. And it's absolutely marked with all these limestone hills. So it would have been pocked with all these different caves. And so sure enough, she says, you guys go up in there, wait for three days. The force will come back, the stormtroopers will come back, and then you'll be good to go. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into this land, these two guys are unwavering. I do wish we knew their names. These two guys say, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Now we see this thing called the scarlet cord. Don't be too quick to jump to the cross because it's red. Because what's actually happening is the writer of Joshua is connecting it back first, not forward. Would not have known about the cross, but he certainly knew about what was behind, and that was the Passover where an innocent would have to die for the sake of the guilty. You might remember when the children of Israel were in Egypt and the 10th plague was the angel of death. And God tells them, you must take a spotless lamb and you must kill that lamb, undeservingly the lamb. But you must kill that lamb, take its blood and smear it over the doorpost of your home. And then you have to go inside that safe space that the innocent blood has created. You have to go in the empty, safe space, just like Noah and the ark. You have to be in the safe space that God provides. And so ultimately, yes, of course, you have to be in the safe space that God provides in the cross of Christ. But first, it's pointing back to Passover. You've got to be in there. And if you're not in there, we have no way of protecting you whatsoever. Are we clear? She says, yes, I got it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I love that. She confessed. She professed. I believe something. And then she did something about it. Hers would have been the only apartment that had a red cord hanging out the window. Hey, Rahab, insolent, arrogant, sea monster, prostitute chick, what is that? Oh, it's just, you know, thinking about some new drapes. I don't know. She did something she identified because of her trust in who God was and what God was about to do. Now then, verse 22. They departed and went to the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Noon, and they told him all that had happened to them. Dude, you should have seen it. We were so awesome. We were like ninjas, like Hebrew ninjas. Nobody knew that we were in, uh, and that's actually not true. We totally got busted within about 36 minutes. But they report all of the things, verse 24, and then they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. I have to tell you, that wrecks me. It's almost verbatim what Joshua had said when he came out from spying the land. Great big God, little bitty giants. Behold, the Lord has given it to our hands, their hearts will melt away before us. And Joshua hears that, and he's like, I know what you're doing. Well played. That's exactly right. Bread, bread, let us, let us, let us go to the meat. Joshua chapter two, let's look at verse eight the heart of the passage. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Before the men lay down up on the roof, we're back inside the house, we're up on the roof, she came up to them on the roof, this insolent, arrogant, untrustworthy, Canaanite, idolatrous sea monster as they're trying to tuck in for the night. Does she have a pirate's knife at her teeth? I mean, what's, what's gonna happen? Is she gonna gut them up there? Then she got a whole bunch of dudes behind her with eye patches? Supposed to wonder, how is God gonna get this done? Verse 9, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Whoa. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land, what? Melt away before you. Rahab says what the spies should have said 40 years ago. Rahab, a Canaanite idolatrous sea monster prostitute, says what the nation of Israel should have said 40 years ago. That's remarkable. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. <laughs> it's the 21st century. I hear people all the time talking about, oh, the Red Sea's misunderstood. It was probably the Reed Sea, and they really just sort of like hiked through some swamp, and it wasn't really that big of a deal. Not according to the Canaanites. The Canaanites were all scared spitless because they had seen and heard all the story that God dried up the Red Sea and the people went across on dry land out of Egypt and how the entire Egyptian army was absolutely annihilated. You do not jack with Egypt. You do not mess with, what's another name for Egypt? Rahab. I know that your God is God. We've heard the stories of you crossing the Red Sea, how you came up out of Egypt. Now, Rahab, Egypt, is no more. I'll have none of that, thank you very much, is what she's saying. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to harem, utter destruction. We've heard the stories, two nameless spy guys. We know what you guys are capable of. We know what you do. You encountered Sihon as you crossed the Red Sea. You began to move up the eastern side of the Jordan, and this guy, Sihon, said, you shall not pass, or something, or something. And they said, we just want to walk through your lands. We won't even pluck a grape. We won't even drink water. We just want to move through your lands. And he said, no, I will not let you. I will fight you. And they said, so be it. And they killed all of Sihon, his family, his entire people group, slaughtered. They move further north. They encounter a guy named Og, who on his business card, it says, Og, the fat king over the hill. That's supposed to be a deterrent. He was huge. He was, and he says, I will fight you. They said, we don't want to fight you. He says, I'm going to fight you. And so they do. And they are slaughtered. They are devoted to harem, utter destruction. Man, woman, child, hummingbird, and amoeba are wiped out. And Rahab says, I've heard these stories. This isn't legend or myth or lore. This stuff happened. It was right over there like just miles away from here. We know that this has happened. We know who you are. More importantly, we know whose you are. Verse 11, here's the central piece of steak in this sandwich. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Not the Israel people, should not have been that way. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For, here's her confession, the Lord, Yahweh, your God. He is God. Yahweh is El. El. This Canaanite, idolatrous, arrogant, insolent prostitute who's a sea monster character, she says, Yahweh is God. She makes the good confession just like Peter does in Matthew 16. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What is that? That is a declaration of sovereignty. There is one God and he is Yahweh, your God, both in the heavens and practically, materially, physically on the earth. He is The conqueror. This is her confession. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord, swear to me by Yahweh, your covenant-keeping name of God, that as I have dealt kindly with you, Uh, that gets certainly sanitized. She literally says, as I have shown you chesed, loving kindness, uh, compassionate mercy. It's my second favorite word in the Old Testament, save the very name of God himself. As I have shown you chesed, loving kindness, covenant-keeping mercy, then you do the same for me. Uh, As I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly, chesed, with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Notice there's no mention of spouse or children. Verse 14, And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly, chesed, and faithfully with you. She confesses God. So what are we supposed to take away from this strange little story of this woman named Rahab who is in the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus? Why does this matter? Because she's about as bad off as you can possibly imagine. Joshua probably has no idea when he sends spies to Jericho that there was somebody else in the land that was being prepared for redemption. You see, sin is no match for God's grace. So let me give three quick portable implications to try to prepare us for the Christmas season. Number one goes like this. Trusting God to be faithful in the big picture looks like obeying him in the small picture. She put a cord out of her window. And apparently right away, she gathers all of her family, father, mother, brothers, sisters, their families, and they're all huddled in this little apartment in the wall of the wall. And we know from the text, if you read Joshua 6, <laughs> that pretty soon Israel musters. They cross the Jordan River at flood stages. that The ark is carried by the Levites. And as they step in, the waters pile up in both directions for a swath of 25 miles of dry land. And in they come. And the people of Jericho are right there. You can see the Jordan from Jericho. They're right there. And they see this happening. They see the piles of water in every direction, 25-mile swath. And here they come. And they watch. And there's Rahab gathered in her little apartment, and the the, the doors and the gates of the city are closed. And the whole nation of Israel parades around the city in silence. And nothing happens. They leave. And so they stay and they wait. Just like Passover in Egypt, what just happened? I don't know. We have to stay. The next day, the entire nation walks around one time in silence. Can you imagine the psychological warfare and nothing happens? But she keeps her cord hanging out the window. And you got to know one of the family members is like, I'm out of here. I'm going to get out of here. She says, no, you have to stay. This is the way. You have to stay. Trusting God to be faithful in the big picture looks like obeying him in the small picture. She didn't just say she believed. She acted as though she actually believed. And her actions were a projection of what she believed. And so Christmas is the perfect time to be reminded and reflective on what God has done in Christ. The stage was all set for there to be no way we had any chance. And in this against all odds world, God sent his son in the person of Jesus, born in utter defenselessness into a circumstance that could not have scarcely been worse. Scripture is telling us again and again, over and over, that we are not in control, but that God is working through means of which we are probably not even aware We can trust that he really is good, he really is active, he really is involved, even if we can't see it or fully appreciate it. And just to make sure we get it, God brilliantly makes one of the mothers of Jesus to be a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab that even shows up in his genealogy. She trusted in the promise that God would conquer the land in which she lived. Incredible. We know that she believed God by virtue of what she did. She was found faithful. In fact, she's even recorded in the pages of the New Testament for her faith. Check this out. James chapter 2, verse 25. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He writes this about her. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute? Isn't that fascinating? Justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Justified in that case does not mean... Saved or converted, but a demonstration of what she believed. Hebrews 11.31, she's mentioned again. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Why is she in the hall of faith? Because she had shown hospitality. The same reason Lot, knuckle-dragging Lot, was in the hall of faith, because he showed hospitality to the two angels when they came to Sodom and Gomorrah. Rahab was found faithful. Now, speaking of those two verses about Rahab, the prostitute, here's point number two. Belief transforms our brokenness into brilliance. This is what being in Christ does. It's interesting to me that a lot of the heroes of the faith are typically thought of as men of character, even though they really were not particularly moral guys. You have Abram, who was a liar again and again, if Moses had some serious anger and rage issues and was a murderer, David was a murderer and an adulterer, and Peter was utterly wrecked by a teenage girl when he denies Christ three times, it can happen. Those were the people who were supposed to be the role models, but that's not generally what comes to mind when we think of them. We like to think of them in the stories in which they acted in faith, where they were brave and where they had conviction. Rahab is forever recorded, however, in Scripture as the prostitute. Why? Because she, though deserving to be the object of God's wrath, has been transformed into a trophy of God's grace, God's surprising grace. Some of us have come through significant trajectories of hurt and brokenness, but our God is able to use those stories for his glory and to impart the hope of redemption into someone else. Can I just tell you something that's incredible at Christmas that I don't want you to miss from this story? Perhaps for me, as I read this, the shock of shock of shocks is that she's not sanitized even by the New Testament and the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, God is not ashamed of Rahab. There's no question she was involved in all kinds of debauched, wickedness, idolatrous, arrogance, insolence, and sin. God says... She's an example. She's going to be in the lineage and the line of my son, Jesus. And so can I just say, whatever it is that you're listening to that voice between your ears saying, you're such a, you're such a, God is not ashamed of you. He loves you. And he wants nothing more than to take that story of your brokenness, the wreckage of your own will, and use that to shine brilliance onto somebody else that you have no idea that God's preparing to hear your story. Thirdly, everyone believes something about God. Everyone does. We see that evidenced in this passage. Clearly the spies believed something about God, great big God little bitty problems. And they were acting in obedience to his leading. Rahab believes something about God. She believes that God is God because faith comes by hearing. How do you hear? She had heard all the stories. She had observed and witnessed all that God had done. The Canaanites believed something about God, that he was not the true God, and that all of their false gods were actually sovereign. That always results in destruction. Failure to recognize and receive God as God always ends in judgment, but the surprise of God's grace is that he moves and stirs in the lives of some very unusual suspects to make himself known. Everybody believes something about God, but perhaps few of us have taken the time to actually think, pray, and write it down. So I want to invite you. I want to challenge you and charge you this Christmas season to spend some time thinking through how you have heard. How have you heard about God? Praying to ask God to reveal himself and writing down a few lines of your confession of who God is. It doesn't have to be 17 pages written in King James. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks the disciples. If you were to ask Rahab, you are God. You are the only true God of heaven and on earth. That's a good confession. I challenge you, I charge you, I double dog dare you. Take some time, get a piece of paper and a writing utensil or make yourself a note on your phone. Who is God? And then I promise you, within a matter of time, you will have the opportunity to use that declaration of who God is to a family member, a stranger, some telemarketer who thinks they're gonna sell you a timeshare, hey, let me tell you who God is. Ha, they love that. I challenge you and I charge you. Who do you say that he is? Write it down. And then, like Rahab, ask God for wisdom and courage to live accordingly in the midst of whatever janky Jericho situation you find yourself in. See, sin is no match for God's grace. All of these women that we will have studied this Advent season have something in common. They're part of God's plan to redeem mankind to himself and to one another. We've already read and had sung the genealogy of Jesus, and it includes some really interesting names. One of those names that I mentioned to you was a guy named Nashon. Nashon is listed in numbers as a prince or a chief of Israel. That probably means he was one of the tribal heads. One of the 12 tribes, not real sure, but it probably means he was kind of nobility. He was one of the elders. He was a head of one of the tribes. Now, he has a son named Salmon not probably a fish name, that's just the guy's name is Salmon, who somehow, by God's grace, apparently meets and marries Rahab. Now, I don't know this. The text doesn't tell me, so I'm just gonna use my sanctified imagination here ever so slightly. It's not in the text. I have a sense that one of the two spies that was really bad at his job was a guy named Salmon. Don't know that. Doesn't matter. But Nashon, who is a prince or a chief of Israel, has a son named Salmon who somehow marries Rahab. I think he took her protection seriously and personally. She, despite being a serial prostitute, can I just go ahead and say damaged goods, becomes a family woman. It's a remarkable turn of God's grace. She becomes a family woman despite her past and becomes the mother of a guy named Boaz. Boaz will end up marrying another foreigner named Ruth. Where do you suppose Boaz learned to care for the foreigner? But through his mom. You never know what God's doing, you never know the strange companion that God will send along. And do you see how all this stitches together and weaves this tapestry of the coming of Christ from our mess into our mess to redeem us from our mess? This is the story of the gospel. Just like last week, I said that in a lot of ways I'm I'm like Tamar, but I'm also like Rahab. I'm a product of my own sinful surroundings. My tendency is to live apart from God's presence and to follow my own flesh. But then I hear of one named Jesus who is come, who will come again. Yeshua, his name is God saved, who will come from the east and he will finally conquer everything opposed to him. But I must wait patiently for him to come. Kind of cramped in a little apartment in the wall, you might say. I must wait for him to come and trust in his finished work to escape to the judgment that I know I actually deserve. My only refuge is the safe space that he has provided and graciously created. The woman in this genealogy of Jesus are a great surprise, really. Again, we'd expect for Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel and Leah, but instead we got two Canaanites, a Moabite and a Hittite. It's an amazing thing. These Gentile women who have pinned their hopes to a Jewish man. Sounds a lot like the church, the bride of Christ, as we are awaiting our groom. We've trusted that God will send his conqueror, his Messiah, his Redeemer, his King, because he has sent his Son, and he will come again. And until such time, may we all be reminded, especially at Christmas, that sin is no match for God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Advent, for Christmas, for the coming of Christ Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that's heard the stories, but perhaps is a fringe Canaanite next door to Rahab, you might say. Heard the things, noticed a scuffle, heard a ruckus, but doesn't really buy in. Would you move by your spirit? Would you challenge and charge them? Would you summon them that they would be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, come to take the sin and the shame and the suffering and death of the world away and that they this Christmas would step out of death into life. And they would talk with someone they would know would love or trust or an elder or a deacon or a staff member or a ministry leader, somebody that, like those two spies, would tell Rahab the truth. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that you are not ashamed? That you are aware of our labels and our lives and the past that we truck in and that you are the kind of God that takes brokenness and transforms it into brilliance. And so may we be encouraged this holiday season. We thank you for Jesus. May we have the wisdom to continually lift his name high. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.